Key Aero, your aviation destination. Military Aviation. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Air Warrior podcast. I'm your host, Richard Thomas, and coming up in store this week, we're in conversation with a loadmaster of a Royal Netherlands Air Force C-130 aircraft for a first-hand account of operations conducted in support of the Kabul airlift, which saw tens of thousands of people escape Taliban rule in Afghanistan in the largest airborne non-combatant evacuation in living memory. All of that coming up a little later on in the show. The news this week. Figures from Lockheed Martin have revealed that all three variants of the F-35 stealth fighter, from the conventional A variant, the short takeoff and vertical landing or Stovall B design, and aircraft carrier specific C version, are ahead of the required mean time between system failure and maintenance hour per flight hour. Breaking down the engineering requirement for the three F-35 variants across the program, the projected mean flight hour between failure was 10 hours for the conventional F-35A from a requirement of 6 hours, 7 hours for the Stovall F-35B from a requirement of 4 hours, and 10.3 hours for the F-35C again from a requirement of 4 hours. Regarding mean maintenance hour per flight hour, the F-35A recorded 5.2 hours from a requirement of 9 hours, with the F-35C also achieving 5.2 hours from a requirement of 9 hours. The F-35B was comparatively the most difficult to sustain with a mean maintenance hour per flight hour of 7 hours from a 9-hour benchmark. This puts the F-35B as the most time-consuming of the three variants to maintain, although given the aircraft's stovall capability, this is unsurprising due to the complexity of the duct fan system. Originally due to arrive at Scotland's Prestwick Airport on September the 19th, six Sierra Nevada Corporation Embraer A29B Super Tucanos on a delivery flight to the Nigerian Air Force were held captive at Keflavik, Iceland last week due to poor weather conditions. Four of the six turboprop-driven light aircraft finally departed Keflavik on September the 24th, arriving at Prestwick before heading off on their next leg to Spain on September the 26th. The final two, which reportedly suffered technical issues that delayed their departure, and their accompanying single Dornier support aircraft were expected to leave Keflavik on September the 27th. The A-29Bs have been procured by the Nigerian Air Force in support of the country's wider counterinsurgency mission. In total, 12 aircraft have been acquired which will be employed in a light attack and intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance role once they enter operational service. And finally, India has formalised the acquisition of 56 Airbus C-295 medium transport aircraft to replace its ageing fleet of HAL BAE 748M Subroto aircraft with the finalization of the deal announced by Airbus Defence and Space on September the 24th. It becomes the first Make in India aerospace program in the private sector, involving the full development of a complete military-industrial ecosystem from manufacture to assembly, test and qualification through to delivery and maintenance of the complete life cycle of the aircraft. A large number of detailed parts, sub-assemblies and major component assemblies of aerostructure are scheduled to be manufactured in India. Under the contractual agreement, Airbus will deliver the first 16 aircraft in flyaway condition from its final assembly line at Seville San Pablo Airport, Spain, within four years of the contract implementation. The remaining 40 aircraft will be manufactured and assembled by Tata Advanced Systems in India as part of an industrial partnership between the two companies. 
Delivery of all of the latter aircraft will be completed within 10 years of the contract signature, covering a six-year period commencing after the first 16 have been delivered from Seville. And that was the news. Time now for Modern Military Assistant Editor Joseph Campion, who sat down with Sergeant First Class Pym, Royal Netherlands Air Force C-130H Load Master, on his experiences from 10 gruelling days spent operating in support of the Kabul airlift. Today I am joined by Sergeant First Class Pym of the Royal Netherlands Air Force, also known as the Flying Dutchman C-130 on Instagram. We're going to run through Pym's career as a C-130 Loadmaster at 336 Squadron in the Netherlands Air Force, and then we're going to go on to the very topical subject as he was there during the Kabul airlift. So Pym, welcome to the Air Warrior podcast. Thanks, Maybe. Joe. No, no problem at all. My pleasure. So about your life as a C-130 loadmaster, how did it start? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I started out my military career in the Royal Netherlands Marines. And in the Marines, I was a paratrooper. So not knowing anything about the Air Force, all of a sudden I was working with the Air Force quite a bit, jumping out of their planes. And that sort of sparked my interest in the Air Force as a whole. I then around 2014 joined the Air Force. I applied to be a loadmaster and it took about year and a half to be fully up and running. But that was sort of my, because I had no idea what a load master was. I had no idea the types of jobs you could have on, a, on an airframe like a C-130. And that's kind of what got it started for me. Yeah. And then what made you, like, pardon the pun, what made you make the final jump from the Marines to the Air Force? <laughs> um, I always knew that the Marines was not something for me that I'd be doing until my pension or something I'd be doing for more than just a couple of years. The reason for that is mostly seeing the old dudes. <laughs> they were, <laughs> to me, uh, you know, that was not a lifestyle I, I was looking forward to being, you know, 45 and always away from home in the woods with a big old burden on your back, which yeah. is uh, cool when you're a young dude. But when you're older, at least for me, I, I envisioned having a family and uh, being home a little more frequently, even though I am away a lot. As a loadmaster, it's usually short stints. Yeah. Instead of weeks or months at a time. And that made a big difference for me. Yeah. Also, the fact that you have a little more responsibility as a loadmaster in the sense that as a Marine, at the end of the day, you're still one of God knows how many guys. And as a loadmaster, you always work in small teams and just your crew, just your four or five man crew. And that was just a little more appealing to me. Yeah. No, understood. So could you tell us? What you do as a loadmaster, what are the main roles of a loadmaster and 336 Squadron? They operate the C-130H model. So would you be able to tell us them roles and also would they change if it was on a different model? Or with the H being a bit of a dated model now, is your job easier, harder than it would be on the, the newer models? So let's break that down. We have only four C-130s and they're split between stubbies and two stubbies and two stretch models. Mm -hmm. So that's the H30 and the, the regular H. Yeah. In its core, a low master's job is to calculate weight and balance. So if you look at a C-130 from the side, basically a big old, uh, like a seesaw, that's the word for it in English, right? Yeah. Yes, uh, and you don't want it all the way up front or in the back because that seesaw will be out of balance and you'll have trouble flying. 
So what we're trying to calculate, and you have a very narrow envelope for it, it's expressed in percentages, but you're trying to calculate or distribute the weight in such a way that within that envelope, and preferably in a certain range where you're most efficient fuel-wise and such. So that's your core business is calculating that. And then by calculating where you want to put stuff, for instance, I want to insert 20 commandos with two quads. How do I put that on my plane? And you, you all of a sudden, you have all these things to think about it's in terms of restrictions. You've got your floor limits, you've got your flight limits, but also weight and balance. And then, all right, once we get to the wherever we, we're going, is it going to be hot? Do we need to get these people out ASAP because that will determine how it will load my, my plane as well. So there's all these things to take into consideration. And then there's uh, your job when you do airdrop, you're rigging CDS bundles, for instance, or you're in the back with parachutists and you're rigging their, uh, the cables and all that stuff. So the core is weight and balance. And then there's a lot of add-ons to that, depending on what your qualifications are. And before you're fully qualified, it might take a couple of years and they'll add on qualifications. Like you might be a airdrop qualified loadmaster. You can drop, for instance, military freefall dudes, but now you get an add-on of doing O2. So oxygen, you go up to above 13,000 feet. Yeah. Now all of a sudden you got oxygen and that brings all kinds of risks. So you have an extra training cycle for that. Would it change on other frames in at its base for fixed wing weight and balance will always be your, your core. Yeah. It's a little different when you go to uh, rotary their um, weight and balance. I'm not, to be honest, I'll probably get corrected by rotary load masters uh, hearing this. It's not as big of a part of their job, if it is at all. There are more managers in the back. Yeah. And I'm not sure if they really do a whole lot of weight and balance in the, in the sense that we do it. So we share a name. We're both low masters, but our jobs are very different. But if you were to go to a C-17 or a C-5 or an A-400, you would still be calculating weight and balance, and you would still be doing most of the same stuff, just in a different manner. Because they have different systems on board. Now, is it easier or harder for me on the C-130H as opposed to a J, for instance? Well, everything we have on board, in the back at least, in the cargo uh, space is mechanical. On a J, it's mostly electrical. So the locks for my pallets, for instance, I have to mechanically either crank them or pin them out, <clears throat> as we say. In a J, they would just push a button. No. So that's the main difference. You can just really see it. it's an older frame. So that's, that's the biggest difference. Yeah. So with uh, all these different roles, obviously there's different missions that the uh, squadron participate in or perform. What is your favorite mission as a loadmaster? Obviously, the tactical missions are uh, the most fun because they're most challenging. Yeah. Flying cargo A to B. It can be fun in the sense that you go to a location that you've not been or new sites to see, but the most challenging is the tactical mission because, like I said before, there are so many variables to take into account. Yeah. And then I would break it down. We do a lot of airdrop in the sense of CDS or personnel, and then I'm more I'm a people's person. I used to jump out of planes, so I like to work with people like that. So I really enjoy paratroopers and uh, free fall. Because I really have a lot of interaction with those people. And there's some people I used to work with that I recognize that, you know, years after. 
And especially our jump masters, it's a very small unit. So, you know, everyone is just the, yeah, it's a lot of fun to work with those people. And especially because you're all professionals and you know exactly what to expect from each other. So it's always like a little reunion when you go work with those people again. Yeah. Going on from missions and kind of roles that yourself as a loadmaster and the squadron as a whole perform, a very, should we say, significant mission has just been performed by many NATO nations, which is the Kabul evacuations. I believe you were there, Pim. Is yeah. that correct? Yes, sir. And I'm guessing it was a bit of a memorable mission and very hard-hitting in, in many ways. What was it like to be there? Um, well, starting from the beginning, it's um, obviously everyone's been following the news and we knew things were going down in Afghanistan. Yeah. I was actually on that Friday, the Friday before, flying low level in Scotland. We just yeah. had a little one-day trip on Scotland. I came back and I had a, a message, which initially I thought, was meant for the week after I was going to participate in the uh, weapons instructor course for the C-130s. Yeah. And I thought they were talking about a scenario that we're going to do in the in instructor course. So it didn't even hit me initially what the plan was. So, and I think it was Saturday when they called everyone and were like, hey, listen, dudes, this is what's going down. This is the idea. You're on 48 hour notice. Just prep your stuff. Make sure everyone is uh, in the know back home. Uh, what happened on the Monday, I want to say, yeah, Monday, we came in, we had all our briefs, all our security briefs, all our um, commander's intent and all that. We started prepping our individual jobs. For us as loadies, that means, uh, okay, what's the expectation where we're going to be transporting? Well, we're going to bring people out there. We already know it's going to be a lot of people. So we started prepping the plane for that. Obviously, the first questions you get as a loadmasters, okay, dudes, we're doing emergency evacuation emergency airlift, how many people can we put in your, in your plane? That's the first question you get from state affairs. Yeah. So we're like, well, officially this is the number. If we get waived for that, then this, you know, we can go up from that and we're going to have to floor load people. So we already had that in the back of our mind, but the initial numbers they were talking about is like, Hey guys, you're going to go there and it's going to be probably between 30 and 70 people. I'm like, Oh, that's not too bad. That's, relatively normal load if you fly with uh, I don't know paratroopers we already had a plane sent out in theater the second one was to depart on Tuesday morning with the crew and we flew ahead with the KDC-10 we flew to um, one of the neighboring countries we yeah. staged out of there and then uh, yeah it was crazy from uh, from the second we got there our initial trip to uh, to get the theater took about 26 hours you had all kinds of complications with customs in the area. So 26 hours, everyone was that exhausted. I finally uh, hit my bed at 10 in the morning. And at 12 o'clock at noon, I get a wake-up call like, hey, dude, it's go time. So two hours of sleep after 26 hours. And we're uh, ready to go into theater. The initial mission was to bring in the KCT, Dutch uh, Army uh, Special Forces, into the area, along with some uh, state affairs people. Yeah, They would have to set up the whole train of identifying and processing people that were going to go back. So we dropped those off, which was uh, challenging in the sense that we had about 40 dudes and I've never seen so much equipment and ammo. So they were, they were ready for anything and they had, you know, all the, the, the heavy stuff with them. That was the initial, the initial mission. And then after that, it didn't stop. We'd come back 
for about six hours rest and then go back again and you do two lifts a day with uh per frame you have two tails so that's four lifts a day and initially we started out with the idea okay 30 to 70 and then our first lift was indeed 70 people but very very soon it became clear like no dudes there's a whole lot more people there we're not just gonna bring the dutch but we're gonna bring any european nation that needs people out we're gonna help out so i think the max we did was about 178 yeah it was cramped and what you do is you start calculating for weight that's what i do as a low master weight is what i work with so i can calculate my cg so i had a number in my head with this weight this many people that's what i can lift and then you you arrive there i was amazed the first day i want to say about 30 to 50 percent of the people that i had were children and young children as well some only days old and you could just see the fear in their eyes and i'm a i'm a new dad i'm walking around with my little seven-month-old son now he's asleep in my arms so yeah. when you go there and you see babies his age and younger you know that's just you know it's it's something else and it's weird because we practice these things. We we actually have exercises for for neos. It's called a non-combatant evacuation operation, a neo. Yeah. So even though that was tricky, because you see those people have been suffering, and those kids have been through uh, something difficult, but it also just felt like something I'd done before, or because we practice these things and we we do it so much that it's second nature and. It really was that, you know, it really felt like, yep, I know what to do. We've been here. We've done this, even though we've not been there and done that, but just through sheer practice. Yeah, that, that was so that, one of my questions. That was actually going to be yeah. a question of mine. Like, did you feel prepared? Did you feel like practice and training exercises have contributed to how you perform whilst on such a mission? And if you disregard the, I mean, the factors that are an emotional effects, did you feel like you were? just right i'm doing my job this is it and yeah you kind of answered that question for me and that's quite interesting that's kind of a credit yeah. to um, all the air forces that carry out these training exercises and just make them ready for when stuff happens such as this and yeah that's really interesting well i mean you've been an exercise with us joe so you, you've seen yeah. we do the desert bull exercises and the orange bull exercises which is either two or three or four weeks of uh, exercise either in the netherlands or in the yuma in arizona yeah and we try and incorporate all facets of our job set our skill set the things that we need to be prepared for so yeah it just felt like it could have it could have been a, a training exercise it, it yeah. felt just the same and that that's exactly what you want to achieve with an exercise right yeah, so definitely. i think we uh we did a good job on that and you know there's all all these these factors that have come into play that you don't having an exercise like you know we never have children on board mm -hmm. but very very soon you notice you get into a rhythm uh, we flew like i said we inserted army soft kct on the ground but we flew with marsoft teams uh, maritime special forces teams yeah we had uh six or seven dudes on each tail just for security just in case we either had someone on board who uh for whatever reason posed a, a threat yeah. or we have to have uh, issues on the ground yeah and they were very helpful in the sense as well obviously they provide security we'll put them in in the front and in the back so they could have a, a nice overview but they were also and i think that's that's one of the key attributes to a special forces operator is that 
besides being a tough dude and, you know, they're uh, warriors, they are, all of them are very empathetic. They can really, they need to be able to work with local forces and they need to be able to put themselves in other shoes. Yeah. And they were very good at that. And one of the things they did is we always say seek local knowledge. Immediately after we get people on board, they would search out someone who either spoke Dutch or English and they'd be like, all right, dude, you're going to be our translator now. If we have something that we want to tell these people, you're going to tell them. Yeah. Uh, And everyone was very willing to help, but they would also, you know, they'd have a whole bunch of these um, chem sticks and especially the night flights because my shift, I predominantly flew through the night. Yeah. We want to take off and land in pitch black. We want to be, you know, I'm not visible. They, they will hear you, but you know, you're trying to minimize the risk. So yeah. for the kids, that was very scary. So they yeah. would start handing out these chem lights for the kids to play with. And you could see the parents, they were all obviously that did been at the gate for days and there's, they were shooting and we had people uh, on board that had been trampled and all these things. And you saw as soon as the parents after liftoff started to relax, being like, all right, we're going to a safe place. Then you could also see the kids relax because mom and dad are relaxing. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that was really good. Yeah. So, which airfield did you use the, to shuttle the packs? Yeah, we flew in, in and out of um, Islamabad, Pakistan. Yeah. For a long time, we couldn't uh, we couldn't talk about that, but uh, it's been in the news now. So, yeah, that's that's uh, that was our uh, in and out, which only about a forty-five or fifty-minute flight. So yeah. that was perfect. And we drop them up there and then they would get distributed through whatever European nation their affiliation was with. So the Germans would pick up the Germans with, uh, with one of their tails or we have the new MMU on Eindhoven Air Base, the, the Airbus yeah. A330s. Yeah. They would pick up the Dutch. So um, yeah, it was a good system. Yeah, no, it seems it. Well, from your perspective, it seems like it flowed nicely. Yeah. What was the security like on the ground at Kabul? Did you feel safe? Or, I mean, I know you said you had the uh, the maritime special ops guys with you to provide that security, but do you think they were a necessity? Do you think they were essential? I mean, we see from here, from our couches safely on the news, it looks chaotic. It looks absolutely shocking for everyone involved. But did you feel safe or did you feel like, damn, we need to get out of here? Well, uh, I got two uh, answers or views for that. First of all, obviously, when you're in the military or especially a guy like me, when you've been in the Marines, like you sort of want to go to places like that because you're like, right, this is it. This is the real deal. And so I was in a weird way sort of looking forward to going there. And obviously, right before the whole thing kicked off, everyone's seen the images of the C-17 with people basically on it taken yeah. off. So that was the image you do have. But by the time we got there, credit to the Americans, they had things under control and every country had their special forces teams there. So it was a combined effort, but overall the Americans had the, the lead and they, everything was in order there. And we still had some times where, you know, ATC would be like, Hey, be advised. There are people on the runway or there are people you know, land at your own risk. So there was still that element of risk. Personally, I never really felt, and I'm just speaking for me, I don't know about the rest of the crews. Yeah. I never felt unsafe. I was happy to have those uh, soft dudes there because on board, they were very helpful. 
And yeah, if something did kick off, then you want those dudes there. So yeah, we, we, we couldn't have done that without them. Yeah. One of the things the Dutch military does very well is aftercare. So about okay. a week after we got back, I got called by a Air Force a psychologist. And they're like, hey, you know, just want to check up on you and see if we can schedule a talk. And, uh, you know, just see how you're doing after, uh, after being through that. And that's something they always do. So I think that's very good. And, and what the conclusion of that talk was um, that I experienced it as a very positive thing. I was very glad to have been there and very happy to have been able to do my job. Yeah. So overall, no, I, it, the only thing it was, it was exhausting and that's yeah. the worst it got for me, you know? So yeah, no, I, I never felt unsafe. Obviously the very last day we did two lifts. That was the day where, you know, the, I think it was 27 or so when the, when the Americans said we want every, everyone out. Yeah. We did our first lift successfully last, last people out. And then we knew we just have to go back to extract the uh, soft dudes, the special yeah. forces and the ambassador still there. Uh, right before takeoff, boom, the news hits that a suicide bomber detonates. So that puts some tension on things. We fly into theater. By this point, it's dark already, uh, which is what you want. So that's good. It's dark. We're coming in. We're clear to, to, to come in because, you know, we weren't 100% sure if the field was going to be black or not, but we're like, we're going to go anyway. We've got people there. Okay, we're, we're good to come in. Right before we, uh, we hit Kabul, or we actually were just over Kabul, pretty low level. And we'd, we'd seen tracer fire build up over the last week or last four days, maybe, mm -hmm. from in the distance sporadic to more build up. And then that last day, right before we, uh, we hit the ground there, we got accurate tracer fire, tracer fire. Like we, we got shot at. And then we had the, uh, the soft dudes. We would put them in the windows. Every time uh, we'd be over to over Kabul and be like, hey, if you see something, try and log it. Try and uh, give a location for it so we can report. Yeah. And those dudes were, they were also like, holy moly, like you need to check your plane because I think you got holes in it. Uh, luckily afterwards we, we, we couldn't find anything, but that's, you know, that's the extent of, uh, how bad it got that last day. Oh, really? Uh, we just, we landed on the ground, the soft dudes, they had a couple of quads there that we flew in. They drove the quads on board. You could see in their faces like, yeah, stuff is happening here. Somebody just blew themselves up. They had the ambassador or, um, the, there's a special unit in the Netherlands BSB that had, mm -hmm. had the ambassador with them. We just threw her uh, in between the cargo and be like, all right, just stay here. All the soft dudes uh, positioned themselves. We we're like, we were really expediting things. Took off and then, uh, yeah, there's this elation. We, we took off and then uh, we were above the threat band. And you could see in those dudes as well because they'd been there for days. There were no facilities really for them. So they were roughing it out over there. And um, yeah, they were happy to be out of there because uh, the gate that, the, at the Abbey Gate, where the bomb went off, mm. that was where the Dutch had been for days, and they'd just oh, wow. been relieved by the by the U.S. So they were like, "Yeah, we just brought those dudes, the U.S. Marines, water today, oh, and man. an hour later or so, the detonation." So, wow, yeah. One of my next questions was going to be <laughs> if you could pick out one memory or memorable moment from that whole scenario, what would it be? And that seems quite touching. Uh, memory pin but do you have any others well i i remember 
a little boy that came aboard who was frightened beyond belief because his eyes were gigantic and he was with his parents there. Yeah. You know, when we do tactical flying, the low masters in the back, uh, yeah. we sit, we, we call it sitting in the paratrooper doors. We have this, these little swing seats. Yeah. We sit in the paratrooper door and we look out the little window. We got a, a flare trigger in our hands just in case we need to pop flares if we see something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kid was sitting right below me uh, and he was terrified. And that was one of the days we flew, I think it was already morning or something like that. So it was, there were, the sun was out and I could just see, this kid needs some reassuring. So I, the notion is that like, Hey, give him to me. You can sit on my lap and you can watch, you can look out yeah, and see the ground and see what's going on. That was a biggie for me because that really relaxed him and, you know, got some smiles out of him, even though he didn't speak English and I didn't speak. I honestly, you know, you can't talk on a C-130 anyway, when you're flying, it's yeah. too noisy. Yeah. yeah. But just the fact that he's like, all right, I can see, this, you know, this dude sitting in the window and he's smiling. So I think everything's going to be okay. Yeah. So that was a, that was a good moment. You can see, you can really help someone or a little kid. Yeah. No, definitely. And uh, like, what was the morale on board? I know that's a bit of a naive question, but was it all rush, rush tense? And then as soon as you got above that threat band and you knew you were on your way back to um, Islamabad, was it like, ah, now relax? Or was it all still rush all the way to touching the tarmac? in Pakistan and getting them on the, the next kind of legs, like either on the MMUs or the KDC-10, was it still rush and still tense? Or was it like, right, we're above the threat band, let's relax and everything else is a bit more a bit more chilled in uh, simple English? No, I, I think we are professionals uh, in the sense that, like I said, we train enough for this to know what we can expect. We have all these contingencies and contingency planning. Mm. So, no, I don't think at any point whether we were just about to touch down in Kabul or we're already out there, I think the mood was the same for everyone and uh, the stress level as well. Yeah. So no, I, I don't think there was any rushing at any point. It's always very important for us to really you know, keep your cool so you can keep thinking and make sure you, you make the right calls and the right decisions. And I think that's, that's part of the reason also why I felt like very relaxed through all of or relaxed is the wrong word, but I never felt stressed throughout, throughout any of it because of that. Cause you know, it's it's your it's a crew effort and you, you sense if everyone else is relaxed and you're like right we got this we're good to go and you know that was exactly what it was like so yeah how long were you there in total Pim? and how long were the c-130s and the netherlands air force as a whole uh there i want to say 10 days i think we were there tuesday until the week after i think we left on thursday or friday we had one tail fly back uh kc-10 mm. Or no, I think the Airbus A330 uh, brought some crews back and the, the soft dudes. And then we kept um, one C-130 and one crew in reserve. They stayed there for another week just in case uh, they were needed. In the end, it turned out they weren't. So they flew home a week after us. And how many total missions did you did you fly out of your usual, obviously in training, but did you fly out of um, your mission hours? Did you do more oh, yeah. and less than expected? Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. Like I said, normally, as per uh, flight duty regulations, you need a minimum of um, 12 hours rest in between mm-hmm. sorties. And like I said, that very first day, I had two hours of sleep after a 26-hour day and we went and we had waivers for all that. And it was like that. I was exhausted after those 10 days. Everyone was. So yeah, yeah. everything and you know everything that could be waived, waived was waived 
from floor load impacts, which is obviously not something you do normally, to uh, FDR, the flight duty regulations. It's just an emergency, and then you know the rules change. Okay. Yeah, well, that's certainly interesting to get that sort of perspective, uh, Pim, and I appreciate you providing it to us. Next is like, what's the future hold for you, Pim? I believe you, you just told me prior to this that you're retiring in the Air Force. I know. Yeah, this was a, a very unexpected, but for me, a very positive way to end my Air Force career. I'm getting out November 1st. Mm-hmm. So I was very happy to be able to do this. It was nice to help people because that's something I'll be doing after the Air Force. I have a coffee company with a Marsoft buddy of mine. It's called the Fubar Coffee Company. Mm. And what we do is we sell coffee and uh, part of the proceeds go to uh, uh, veterans and PTSS. So, yeah, I thought that was a, a, a beautiful little bridge from helping people inside the Air Force to helping people outside the Air Force. And I'm looking forward to that. The Air Force has been very good to me. I've experienced so many wonderful things. I've been in awesome places and I've worked with amazing people. Uh, and it's just now time for the next thing. I got a little young family. Uh, I'm looking forward to spending a little more time with my uh, with my son, Benjamin, uh, with my wife. I believe her that. Air Force, she's American. Yeah. And she's, she's going to be flying. Uh, she's going to still be flying. But it's, it's very <laughs> impractical to both be flying. Yeah, so... No. Indeed. Yeah. Um, that could be a total other subject on a podcast, Pim. Like life is <laughs> two flying uh, aircrew, like a wonder what yeah. the difficulties and the bonuses are. And yeah, but uh, well, possibly we might be able to arrange that for another day. But it's been an absolute pleasure, Pim. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all this information. I mean, it's great to get this sort of perspective from frontline point of view, if you could call it that, uh, during such a significant, what could you call the Kabul airlift? It's a very... It's the largest airlift uh, in, yeah, uh, in the last Berlin, couple right? of decades. Yeah. yeah, It's history, basically, and you were part yeah. of it. So, yeah, and thank you for sharing a bit of that for us. Thanks for having me, Joe. I uh, look no forward problem. to seeing you again. Yeah, I'll, no, I'll see you soon. Don't worry. For our listeners, if you'd like to know more about the topics discussed today and all the rest of the news from the air and space domains, please visit the Key Aero and Air International websites. But for now, until next week, thanks for tuning in. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.